going to be in Mark 14, so you could please get out uh, your Bibles and turn with me there. If you don't have one underneath the seat in front of you, you should be able to find uh, a Bible. And we're on page 497 in those copies of the scripture, 497. Significant courtroom trials quickly become a cultural obsessions. You can probably think back through some that have happened in your lifetime in which all of a sudden everything seems to be about some particular trial, the, the drama of it, the plotting, the twists and turns, they're, they're rather captivating. So much so that there's a market when these are big to put them on live stream. Maybe you've even watched some of them. And when there's not a real trial, we have, of course, an endless variety of them to consume in other forms of media. Today, we come to what is, without a doubt, the the most significant trial in human history, namely, Jesus before the, what was called the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities of his day. We will uh, see this in Mark chapter 14. And in just a moment, I'll start down in verse 53. If you're new to the scriptures, the large number is the chapter numbers and the little numbers are the verse numbers. And we'll begin in verse 53. But I want to set the stage first. It's, it's late at night. Jesus has just been arrested under the cloak of darkness. And he's been brought to the body of about 70 ruling authorities who have gathered this time with a, a rather shady scheme. They'd sought Jesus' death for a long time, but because Jesus was popular with the crowds, they were afraid to arrest him in public. His popularity with the, the masses left them jealous, and so they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. Way back in Mark chapter 12, we're told that these chief priests, scribes, and elders were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they didn't because, quote, they feared the people, unquote. It's a dangerous thing when the leaders fear the people because they know they're in the wrong, but they're still committed to doing wrong anyway. But finally, a a breakthrough moment came when Judas, one of Jesus' 12, came and told them, I know where Jesus will be at night. You can arrest him then. The crowds won't be there. You'll just give me some money. I'll do it for you. Now they'd get the inquisition they wanted while Jerusalem slept. So these 70 people are gathered, but they're gathered not in their normal uh, ruling hall connected to the temple. Instead, they've gathered in the high priest's home, a man named Caiaphas. They've ushered Jesus in. They've placed him in the middle of the room and There is chaos. Jesus is surrounded by a sea of hostility. Like a shark sniffing blood in the water, the Sanhedrin was ready to rip Jesus to shreds. But they needed one thing. They needed to convict him of charges so serious that they could then take him to the Roman authorities because only the Romans were allowed to administer the death penalty. So that's the scene. It is um, far more 
uh, juicy than any courtroom scene we've ever seen on the 900 versions of Law and Order or in any of the major trials that have been live streamed in our lifetimes. If you would, with all that in mind, look with me at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For some, for many, bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood before him and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. It was a chaotic scene. The law, Old Testament law, required... Two to three witnesses for a charge to be established. One was never enough. That was a good law, of course, because God set it out to protect people from false charges. The Sanhedrin somehow drummed up a bunch of people who had come in and make testimony against Jesus, but no progress could be made because these false witnesses didn't agree with each other. It was very clear that the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders had a verdict before they even had a charge. But they couldn't make it stick. Because it's, it's far easier to just tell the truth than it is to lie in concert. Jesus hadn't said a word yet, and yet he was still winning. The irony of all this is palpable. The religious authorities made accusations against the one who always told the truth by using false witnesses who couldn't even get their story straight. And they were supposed to be the ones administering justice. They were claiming the moral high ground, and yet the ninth of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Religious hypocrisy is among the most repulsive of sins. It has done damage in so many cases. Finally, Caiaphas, it seems he had enough. And so he rose to take matters into his own hands. We see this in verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. While the room was swirling with frenzied chaos and the high priest was demanding a response, Jesus stood calm, cool, collected. If you were with us last week, would you think of the difference between Jesus now in the moment he was anticipating and how he was previous in Gethsemane thinking about this. It's a big difference. And the end of verse 61 is particularly significant. 
Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Christ, of course, is not Jesus' last name. The word Christ means anointed one. It's a title. And it was given to the Messiah. It was given to kings. The high priest is asking Jesus if he claims to be the long-awaited, promised Messiah who had come to rescue God's people. He said, are you the one the Old Testament so often and frequently points us to? But then notice the question goes further. It says, are you the son of the blessed? It was common for Jews to refrain from verbalizing the the name of God, Yahweh. They had great reverence for his name, and so they wouldn't use it. But it's clear that the blessed refers to, to God. So the high priest is simply saying, do you claim to be the son of God? Do you claim some kind of divinity for yourself? Are you connected to God in such a way that you could claim to be his son? Now, what happened next is the point of the entire book of Mark. From the very first verse, the tension has been building to this moment, this very moment. Mark has pressed us on every page to ask. In light of what Jesus just did or just said or how people responded to him, who do you say Jesus is? The whole book is about that question. Who do you say Jesus is? And now in this moment, finally, Jesus is being asked. Jesus, who are you? Now earlier in the book, multiple times, there have been occasions in which Jesus has done something for someone. And then he's told them as they come to see his identity. He's told them, don't go telling people who I am. And yet now, this time, Jesus himself will declare his own identity. Look with me at verse 62. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his garments And said, what further witness do we need? This wasn't like a wrestling move. They're about to get in the ring. This was a sign of tremendous mourning. Tear your clothes. Verse 64, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. The guards received him with many blows. Jesus responded and the room exploded with rage. But why, why they were so upset may not be readily obvious to us. If you're taking notes, you might look closely at that phrase, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand. That's a very deliberate allusion on Jesus' part to Psalm 110, verse 1. 
And the rest of that phrase, coming with the clouds of heaven, comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus, in other words, is reaching back into scriptures that they would be familiar with, pulling forward both of those passages into that moment and saying, those are about me. Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 are prophetic passages about the Messiah. And Jesus is using them to say, I am in fact the Christ. But he's not just saying that. See, if you had time to study Psalm 110 and Daniel 7 closely, you would find that both of those passages, the references Jesus is using, are about God's power and authority to address evil and to act as judge and bring just judgment. So do you see what Jesus is doing? It is brilliant. To the religious authorities, nothing could be more blasphemous. Because not only is Jesus saying, I am the anointed Messiah, but he's also saying the rights, the power, the authority that belong to God to deal with evil are mine. That's why the high priest tore his clothes and everyone became rage monsters. They thought that they were there to judge Jesus. But Jesus is saying, oh no, you will one day see my power. I am the just judge. I wonder, who do you say Jesus is? This is who Jesus claims to be himself. Do you agree? Would you say the same thing that Jesus says? If you're not a Christian, we want to thank you so much for being here. And we also want to plead with you not to make the same mistake that the Sanhedrin's making. You see, they came to Jesus in this passage with a predetermined verdict. Their minds were already made up without having ever actually examined the evidence. Friends, Christians are not people who look at spirituality and turn off our brains and trust our feelings. Now, Christians are people who examine the evidence and by means of that evidence are persuaded that Jesus is in fact who he says he is. I would encourage you to pray for a sincerity and a willingness to believe even if you aren't exactly sure who you're praying to. Ask God for an open mind. Commit to following the evidence wherever it leads. And then simply open the Bible and read. Talk with other believers about it. A posture of predetermined judgment against Jesus is not only intellectually dishonest, but it's foolish to not at least look at the evidence. I myself as a teenager was extremely skeptical about Christianity, but God was bigger than my questions. 
Now, if you would, let your eyes glance again back over verse 54. Verse 54. And think about that in light of the rest of, of the paragraph. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. The whole paragraph is about Jesus' trial. It almost feels like, uh, those of you who are old enough, to remember back to the election in Florida with the dangling chads. Do you remember that? It sort of feels like the editor pushed down on that verse, but it just hung on. Because it doesn't seem to fit. Seems like it's a dangling chad. Doesn't belong. The whole paragraph is about Jesus. And yet there's this one weird verse about Peter. Something seems off. Beloved, anytime you come across that in the scriptures, pay attention. Because in those moments where the Bible presses us to see something that seems like it's odd, wrong, there's going to be a diamond in the rough there. There's going to be a little gift to help us see something that we might not otherwise see unless it had been written and crafted in a way that would cause us to look more closely and ask more questions. Mark embedded that sentence to tell us that while Jesus was being interrogated inside the high priest's home, something similar was happening to Peter outside the high priest's Let's see what it was. Look at verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. Remember earlier in the evening, last week, we talked about this. Jesus, I guess it was two weeks ago, Jesus told all the disciples, you are all going to fall away from me. Peter, of course, vehemently denied it. I doubt he did anything unvehemently. He always seemed to be the first disciple to speak, to speak the most boldly, the most brashly, and at times to do so in arrogance. He was a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. Peter told Jesus, even if everyone else falls away, I will not. Even if I have to die with you, I will not recant. So Jesus responded back in verse 30, if you're interested where this is, that before the rooster crows two times, he was dating a specific time in the night in which the rooster would crow, you will deny me three times. As the night unfolded, Jesus indeed is arrested. And in that arrest, everybody scatters. But Peter apparently hid back in the darkness. And somehow he made his way scurried in to the courtyard of the high priest. See, he's staying true to Jesus. Where are the other ten? 
They're gone. But not Peter. Peter's there. He's there within earshot of Jesus. He's there because he wants to do what he said he would do. He's there because he loves Christ. He's there because down to his very bones, he is committed to doing whatever it takes to stick with Jesus. He has every intention of never denying the Christ. And so to get this scene, I think you've got to imagine that we're sort of uh, at a play. We're sitting on Broadway. And unusually, this play has two stages. On the top stage is Jesus inside with the high priests, calm, cool, collected, telling the truth. Inside, outside, the lower stage. Peter. Jesus is surrounded by society's most powerful people. Peter is outside, lower stage. Surrounded by those who have no voice at all, no power. What will happen as Jesus confesses he's the Christ, as Peter is below intending to confess he's, he believes in the Christ? What happens? Mark has, has written this in such a way that we're meant to compare and contrast as these scenes happen simultaneously. Slave girl, the lowliest of persons, says, you, you, you were with Jesus. You're with that Nazarene. Verse 68, but he denied it. Saying, I know, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And then he drew back. He went out of the gateway and the rooster crowed. That first rooster crowing was a warning shot. It was a shot over the bow. Peter, pay attention. I told you that you'd deny me three times. I've given you my grace that you won't do it again. I've only done it once. Verse 69, and the servant girl saw him and began to say to, again to the bystanders, this man is one of them. So now she's not saying it to him alone. She's pulling in the crowd so they can hear. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, while the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man whom you speak. Immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Notice there are three denials. First, to a servant girl. Second, to the girl who's looped in the bystanders. And finally, to the bystanders themselves. Apparently, they heard his accent in the second denial. 
And they talked about it among themselves, and then they were convinced, oh, he must have been with Jesus because he sounds like a hillbilly. Immediately that rooster crowed, and Peter realized what he'd done. And he crumbled and wept. Church, this story is, from beginning to end, the tale of two confessors. One person on that upper stage, under extreme pressure from the most powerful Jewish authorities, remained faithful to God. Jesus had counted the cost. He knew what was to come. He knew, if I do not deny who I am, I will die. And yet he remained steadfast. While on that lower stage, the other person, questioned by powerless people, denied. And not only denied, but denied egregiously cursing himself and taking an oath. That means swearing by God himself, I do not know Jesus. Why did Mark write this in this fashion? He, he could have written it in other ways. But why show us so clearly that these two things were happening side by side at the same time? I think it's because he wants us to ask this question. How did Jesus remain steadfast while at the exact same time Peter failed so horribly? We ought not demonize Peter. He had every intention of doing the right thing. And more than the other ten, he did. He's there putting himself in a place of danger. Mark has set the stage so we'll ask that question. How? How did Jesus stay faithful while Peter became so unfaithful? Well, think back to our passage last week. Perhaps, I mean, we don't know the time frame. It would have been short, perhaps just an hour or two before what we've just read happened. Jesus is in Gethsemane. He is so Ripped with what is ahead, that he's laying on the ground, pleading, Father, if there's any way that any other way can get this done, let this cup pass from me. It horrified him what was ahead. While he was doing that, while he his humanity was on the very ledge. Prayed for help. And what was happening at the same time? Well, he told Peter and James and John, stay awake, be alert. Don't give yourself over to spiritual lethargy. Watch. Temptations are coming. And what did Peter, James, and John do? They did what you might wish you were doing right now. They slept. They slept instead of preparing themselves spiritually as Jesus had instructed them. 
Now, don't miss this little detail. Jesus falls on the ground praying and pleading with the Father. His humanity, even perfect humanity, has reached its greatest point of weakness. And then he got up and he went back. He found them asleep. And he told them, wake up. You're going to fail unless you get ready spiritually. How many times did he do that? Not once. Not twice. Three times. That's one time of pleading and warning for every denial. That can't be a coincidence. Beloved, Jesus was pushed to the very brink. He knew that even perfect humanity must have the power of God to withstand the hostility of the world. And so Jesus asked God, take this hardship, but I submit to your will. And in submitting to your will, I'm asking that you would fill me with your power and strength. Over and over that night, that's what Jesus did. And so the Father and the Spirit strengthened him, supernaturally supercharging Jesus' humanity with the power of God. But Peter, on the other hand, when he's in warming himself at that fire, this is his moment of being pushed to the brink. And he was so sure that he would stand with Christ that he didn't prepare. It seems he must have thought he could stand strong just fine. As a fellow type heir, I can understand how that happens. I chronically find myself back in self-reliance. And so Peter didn't prepare. He never cast himself on the ground. He never asked for God's help. He refused to watch and pray, believing he was sufficient with all the resources he already had, even though Jesus was telling him, you're not. And so he failed. He failed when he so badly did not want to fail. Mark has so brilliantly framed this story so that we would get this lesson, church, that yes, we would understand exactly what happened, but so that we would understand what happened in this way. It's that those who reject self-reliance and embrace their dependency on God will be infused with power to stand for Christ. That's what Mark's telling us. He's saying, if you want to not do what Peter did, those who reject self-reliance and embrace their dependency on God will not do what Peter did. Why? Because they're big enough, strong enough, brave enough, courageous enough? No. Because they will be infused with the power of God. Godly courage flows from dependency on God, not personal bravado, not 
your natural disposition, not your personality, not the nature of the aggression against your faith. None of those things really matter at the end of the day. Godly courage flows from dependency on God. Christian, do you want to stand for Christ? When you face moments in which people are speaking ill of him, acting in opposition to him, mocking your own faith, pressing you to do things you know, do not honor your Lord. Do you want to stay true to him? Then understand God is not interested And you pulling yourself up and in your own bravado, being strong. He cares literally nothing for that. Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We will all face trials and sufferings so severe, we will crack. It is absolutely inevitable. Unless our weak flesh is filled with power from on high. It is only those who reject self-reliance and embrace their dependency on God who will be infused with power to stand for Christ. Christian, are you convinced of that fact? The time to get convinced of it is today, not in the future, not when you're in the moment, but now. Now. Many of you are young. Those of you who aren't, you're young at heart. Amen? Many of you who are young and you probably have never seen this. But it, it used to be when church buildings had steeples that there wasn't a cross on the steeple and there wasn't that spinny thing, weather deal. There was a rooster. You ever seen one of those? Churches used to put roosters on top of the place they gathered to worship. Why? It's because there's grace from the Lord Jesus Christ for even those who in the most important moment to speak up for God don't. God does not forsake you when you forsake him. God does not let go when you do. This is the marvel of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we who have denied, and in some way, shape, or form, beloved, every one of us has. We who have denied our God, gather 
to worship the God who forgives even that. Friends, if you're, if you're not a believer, if you don't know Jesus Christ, then I would encourage you to pursue him or pursue the evidence toward him, like I talked about earlier. Because there is a sense in which every act of disobedience toward God is a denial of who he is. And in that way, it's a failure like Peter to not recognize who God is and to say it rightly and yield to him. And that is a most serious thing. In fact, nothing else in your life matters more than following the evidence and getting that resolved by the grace of God. In just a moment, we're going to see a baptism. A baptism in which we will hear a sister in Christ make the good confession that in that moment Peter didn't make. And that could be you. If you would but turn to Christ from sin, all your denials would be forgiven and you would be filled with a love that forever would be yours in Christ. Let's pray to that end. Father, we ask that those here who do not yet know you would be persuaded by your spirit that you exist, that the scriptures are true, that Jesus did come, that he did in fact go through what we talked about today. And that that led to his death on the cross that was in place of sinners. But the grave couldn't hold him. And so in his vindication, he rose again. And now in him, there is life and forgiveness so much so that we're quite content to boast in our weaknesses, even gathering under the rooster to worship him. I pray, Father, for fellow Christians who have been convicted today that they have denied him. As they confess that sin to you, would you cause your grace and mercy and forgiveness to flow like cleansing water over them. And we all marvel at your kindness and your grace to us. In your sweet providence, in a way we could not have orchestrated, we now get to see another confessor. We thank you that you saved Greta. We thank you for her the courage that she has been infused with power from on high to tell us what you've been doing in her life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.